From the virtual newsroom of Impact Alpha, this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, January 15th. I'm Monique Aiken. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Barron and Marion Johnson of Frontline Solutions, a Black-owned social impact consulting firm based in North Carolina and Washington, D.C. Hello, Jessica and Marion. Hello. Their recent report, Democracy's Power Brokers, about the political power of women of color, feels especially relevant in light of recent events. So I'm looking forward to digging in with both of you. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in impact investing. The COVID disruption is expanding community lending. Community development financial institutions are distributing the next round of small business loans under the U.S. COVID relief package. And $12 billion in new capital for CDFIs and MDIs, or minority depository institutions, provides badly needed balance sheet support for the lenders themselves. But there are some devilish details to work out, as Lori Spangler and George Sturgeon write in a post on Impact Alpha, to make sure the new capital is as effective as it could be. Employee ownership is trending. The most recent example is the conversion of Taylor Guitars, whose 1,200 workers now own the company. Also significant, the conversion was backed by the $100 billion Healthcare of Ontario pension plan, which is among the first examples of a pension fund directly funding an employee ownership conversion. Commercial and industrial solar is starting to take off in Africa. Daystar Power raised $38 million to build and manage installations in Nigeria, Ghana, Togo, Senegal, and Cote d'Ivoire. Investors included Morgan Stanley and Poparo. Electric fleet company Proterra will go public through a SPAC. Green and renewable energy companies have been prime targets for the special purpose acquisition companies, which are bringing billions in capital for sustainability solutions. The UK electric van maker Arrival also is going public via a SPAC. Amazon is joining big tech's push on affordable housing. Microsoft, Facebook, Google, and Apple have also committed to investing in affordable housing in tech hubs where housing costs are soaring. Amazon's housing equity fund is committing $2 billion to preserve and create 20,000 affordable homes in Seattle, Washington, DC, and Nashville. And here's a compelling proposition. Turn air into high protein food. Air protein in Pleasanton, California, converts carbon dioxide, oxygen, and nitrogen from the air into meat using microbes. The black woman-led company raised $32 million. You can read all of these stories and more at impactalpha.com. Welcome, Jessica and Marion. Your report, Democracy's Power Brokers, Political Power of Women of Color, was published a lifetime ago in October just before the election. (laughs) Obviously, things have changed a lot since that report came out, and I want to dig into those findings with both of you. But before we get there, we have to talk about last week. What were you thinking while watching the insurrectionists storm the Capitol? (laughs) (laughs) I, I I was actually shocked, and I didn't know what I was seeing. I just thought, oh, you know... Here, here's a little rally. And then I kept thinking it's getting closer and closer. And now there's a window busted and people. And I think I was so moved by the hypocrisy of how this situation was handled. I, my entire body became so tense and in part filled with rage because of the hypocrisy that I was viewing. And there was nothing else that I saw was just was if this was anyone with a different color 
with something wrapped around their head, with something different on their bodies, they would be treated completely different, different colored flags, different colored skin. You know, it just, it, yeah, the, the hypocrisy of that moment really took me out. Marion. Yeah. I was, um, I was actually on a client call when things sort of hit their fever pitch. And so mm. I, you know, I like to close all of my windows and turn Wi-Fi off my phone so that I can just sort of focus on the call. But all of these alerts started coming through while, you know, I'm listening to somebody talk about processing their own DEI journey. And I was like, hi guys, I'm sorry. I can't <laughs> super focus right now. Um, cause that sounds like there's blood on the capital steps. Um, but it just like, that's how I felt in that moment. Just like, I couldn't really, you know, I just couldn't really process it, but it felt like, you know, as the hours sort of passed, it felt like the sort of logical destination point ever since Trump started challenging Obama's, um, citizenship and his right to be an American really and to be our president. It felt like this is what we have been warning people about steadily for the last very long four years. And um, it's just kind of exhausting to be mm -hmm. the canaries in the coal mine really and to have been saying, this is dangerous, this is dangerous, please, this is very dangerous. And to have, especially, you know, like white dudes whose entire brand is being reasonable and objective to have them say that we're being hysterical and that we're overreacting. like it. It doesn't feel good to be told that and it really doesn't feel good to be right. And so that's sort of where I'm at right now. Where it's like, we told y'all and I still don't feel good. I don't feel the satisfaction of having been right. I just feel awful. And this last week, since you've processed it more and of course, um, all of the I told you so's are coming out. Um, all of those folks saying, anyone who works about political history told you so. Black people told you so. Women told you so. Hillary told you so. Um, what have you kind of felt since then in this last week as we kind of see more evidence come out about what really happened? I remember that a uh, black man became the 11th black senator and a Jewish man was elected in a very red state. And so I just keep those um in the forefront of my mind that there are still things moving and there are still things to be done and things happen, historical things happened. And in part, these kind of go together white, right? Like, you know, white backlash and the progress of multiracial coalitions that are seeking to literally bring liberty and justice to all. So I see, I am holding on to that. And I, you know, I, I knew again with the hypocrisy, you know, you see these folks going to jail and getting organic meals in jail and, you know, just all kinds of things, you know, George Floyd cried out for his mother and that did nothing for him. And this man cried out to his mom and he gets organic meals in jail. And so the hypocrisy for me is enough. And I just need to start focusing on what, what the, the matters at hand and the matters at hand is that we flip the Senate in a very red state and that can be replicated for the rest of the South. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to sort of focus on the fact that despite the fact that the South in particular is such a suppressed part of the country that you see this harshest voter suppression laws, you see the most mm -hmm. violence when we're trying to vote, we were able to still come together and, you know, make liberty happen. Like Jessica said, like we are forcing America to live up to all of its ideals and all of its values in the face of actual extreme terrifying violence and that is something to hold on to and to really be proud of while at the same time just being sort of sickened at just how violent 
whiteness as a concept is and just how unavoidable it's become that this is, you know, we're in really very serious danger now. And it's, yeah, it's hard to hold those two things, but I'm trying to make space to hold both of those. Well, I certainly appreciate your focusing on what did happen that actually could be an inoculation in some ways to our future. And your report actually speaks to that as well. If we can get into the findings of that, um, there are some opportunities for greatness. And can you share what some of those findings have been for the report and, and how people received it in some ways? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, Monique, on an earlier time where you and I chatted, you kind of called us fortune tellers. Um, and to see that, you know, putting your your backs behind women of color is really the smartest move. And um, we saw that, you know, with Georgia, not just Georgia, I mean, we saw, um, you know, indigenous and native women literally uh putting folks on the backs of horses, right? 10 miles to the poles, you know, and having then the Navajo nation, you know, almost single-handedly flip Arizona for us, right? So you see the mobility um, and the ingenuity of um, women of color. And in the report, I think it, it does such a beautiful job of laying out. And I will say, you know, all of these findings come from us talking directly to women of color who are in the ecosystem of politics in some way. They are organizers, they are scholars, they are elected officials, they are part of um, PACs and, and so on. And so this comes straight from those who are, are on the ground. But I, I think the findings are really threefold in that if we reimagine the definition of political ambition, you are able to see that women of color have been the most politically engaged those who are redefining and uh, providing the most effective strategies that hit kind of the most um, uh, most parts of our communities that are in need, right, of, of um, this democracy to work for them. And so just if you understand the political ambitions of women of color, then you can support and understand the extreme genius that they've had in strategies to mobilize to um, create more, you know, uh, equitable kind of um, civic engagement, right? And just in essentially hold our nation to its values, right, of, of the democratic process and to liberty and to justice for all. And then from that, we saw um, the strategies, but also the barriers that prevented women from being their full selves and yet still organized, right? So you have women who are experiencing violence on the campaign trail. You have women of color who are typically the heads of household who are juggling their families, you know, their elders in their household, their children, the community's children, and still sitting there advocating. And so what would happen if we had a, a support system for these women of color so they didn't have to do so much? you could see even greater kind of leaps and bounds. And then finally, we were able to kind of bring up some of these, what we call opportunities for impact and ways to support um, what one of our uh, interviewees called the other swing vote, which is women of color, right? And if you mobilize and get women of color to see themselves as politicians in their own right, you can mobilize and move a state, which is what we saw in Georgia. And so, you know, I think it was 
you know, I get chills and goosebumps, I think, thinking about this report and thinking about those interviews and the foreshadowing of not even knowing way back when, once upon a time in October 2020, to be here now in January and to have seen this come to fruition. Marin, do you want to weigh in there as well? Yeah, I think I would just um, really highlight like, I mean, when you called us fortune tellers, I think I went into the Georgia runoff elections feeling really good about what was going to happen just because we had talked mm. to women of color who had done work in Georgia. And one example would even just be like the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, NAPOF. Mm. Um, we spoke with them and they said that they were doing really aggressive uh, contact with like voter contact and prospective voter contact in Georgia, rural Georgia in particular. And they said that... Um, the people that they contacted, Asian American people in Georgia, were three to four times more likely to vote in just the 2018 midterms. Mm. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the midterms. I mean, that's such huge, like, that's a demographic that really gets overlooked. And I think that really gets taken for granted a lot of the time. Like, I think that there's this sort of status quo understanding that, oh, we don't need to do a lot of outreach in communities of color. We don't need to do a lot of outreach in the South because, you know, people of color, they're going to vote the way they're going to vote. We need to focus on this sort of imaginary white moderate, and that's where we need to focus all of our attention. But I think what our report shows is that, no, if you actually focus your attention on communities of color, there's so much potential. There's so much understanding of what our communities need, and we just need people to talk to us and say, what do you need? We can be a part of that solution, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, clearly there's a lack of research in this as as those who run these numbers and to say which group is important in this any particular election. Um, you know, what did you see that was coming or feeling that made you even uh, compelled to write this and, and begin that research? I mean, again, you know, the times were not where we are now, which again, you seem like soothsayers now, but you didn't know that last summer that wasn't there in the early part of last year. Um, and this idea that not only is this area under research, but it's underfunded. The research is underfunded. The women are underfunded. There's just a, such, um, you know, we're not bringing the capital to the right resources to both the understanding and the women that you're talking through. But if you can just say a little bit more about the process of what brought you to that and, and thinking that this is a report that was needed, again, last October, a lifetime ago. Yeah, you know, we had been approached um, by a client to kind of work on expanding this kind of area in so much as they were interested in like, how do we support women of color? You know, I have heard this, you know, buzz in the air that they might be the ones to, you know, support. So they're like, what do you know about that? And for us, it was like, let's talk to them. How about that? How about we talk to these women? Because as you said, I'm in our friend, Dr. Nadia Brown over at Georgetown, who is one of the foremost um, scholars on um, gender, race, and politics, talks about how under-resourced and researched this area is primarily, as I said before, because of this idea that we have in our our heads, this very gendered idea of political candidacy that supports men as legitimate leaders. And so women of color, you know, they're engaging their school boards, their local churches, their, you know, watch groups, community organizations, but these efforts are rarely viewed as political or leadership qualifications. And so we have overlooked what has been happening all this time. And I think with the, um, 
just particular buzz around the 2018, uh, you know, primaries and kind of seeing essentially too how women of color voted, right? And versus their white counterparts and versus men. Again, it was that this is the other swing vote. As Marion alluded to, we don't need to go after, you know, the the kind of moderate, right? It is not that that is not what is going to shift and move the tide for this country. It is not about the white moderate. It is about the woman of color who has been doing this work. And so how do we then try to create a framework to understand her? How do we try to create scaffolding to support her? And how do we try to create pathways and essentially, you know, clear the way out so they can continue to move forward? And that was really, um, you know, kind of how we came to this work, which is super fascinating because, again, these are things that we, you know, you, you hear this, you know, trust black women, trust black women. And it's like, yes, trust them. Here we are. And this is why. And so it almost felt counterintuitive to to do this and to like ask these questions in some ways i felt silly asking these women some of these questions because this has been historically who has led the way for us i mean you can go as far back as you want to and you will find a woman who has stood in the gap and and has been given very little recognition and we look about when we you know read theories about you know political power and Um, leadership, you're not going to see their names and you really should. So our hope is that this report is a part of that tidal wave that continues to push folks to reimagine and not just reimagine, but give these women their rights and their dues in terms of the leaders and the strategists that they are. Well, thanks for that. And can you give us a preview of what Frontlines is going to be up to next in the coming year? One one project I'm I'm really excited about is similar to this one where we um, talk to Black women in philanthropy who lead at the director level and above. Many are C-suite board members and trustees. And so understanding the war chest in which women of color, Black women in particular, are responsible for, and then understanding what Black women's leadership has meant to philanthropy and to these foundations um, is something that I just think is so exciting to talk about, to elevate, um, and to really challenge as we're moving forward. So that's something um, that we're coming down with. And also we are working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to provide up to 10 grants um, that are between $100,000 to $300,000 to organizations that are working to kind of dismantle economic disparities um, and are committed to intersectional racial justice. Yeah, I think um, it is sort of exciting. Like we saw last year in particular, especially after June, we saw a lot of organizations sort of coming to us for help with understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so excited and honored to be part of a lot of those people's journey and to sort of help them figure out how they can really be living the values that they that they have, but they haven't really, since all of our systems and all of our structures are not created for equity in any way, um, how we can sort of help them restructure themselves so that they are actually aligned with those values. And so I'm excited about that work for sure. Yeah, I think too, we are um, really investing in our own um, genius. And I work with extraordinarily brilliant people, as you have heard today with Marion. And so we are really trying to pursue that as a firm and elevate all of the really cool interests um, and perspectives and vantage points. So we're trying to do more publications 
from our internal staff externally around issues of policy and uh, health um, or uh, health equity and uh, a variety of other topics, especially too with our equity footprint. And we've really pushed that and revamped it, not just for foundation leaders, but for nonprofits. We also have a corporate version that we're working on, but really helping organizations to expand their equity footprint in every facet of what they do so that we can see more equitable systems overall. Yeah, Um, You can find the equity footprint at equityfootprint.org. And so that's where you can actually download the document for free. That's fantastic. And thank you so much for making that resource available. I I know it was a powerful piece of work. Um, I've looked at it before. And thanks to you both for joining us here today. It's been a delight to talk to you. And I so very much look forward to the philanthropy report that you mentioned, as well as all the rest of the genius that you'll be exposing from your team in the coming year. Thank you so much for having us. It was really yeah, it was really great to be here. You. Thank you. That's going to do it for this impact briefing. You can find more info about Jessica, Marion, and Frontlines, plus a link to the report at impactalpha.com. And check out Marion's podcast at the intersection. Impact Alpha's podcasts are available for free wherever you listen. The journalism that powers them is made possible by Impact Alpha subscribers who receive the daily brief and full access to Impact Alpha content. Join us. Podcast listeners get $100 off their annual subscription. Go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and use the code briefing100 for $100 off. Thank you for listening and thanks to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director for TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Make sure to check back for next week's briefing. Until then, take care.